is the most important thing uh, that we do as a culture, which is every Thursday at 4.30, we close computers, we put pencils down, we join in that piazza space I told you about, and one or two projects will be presented or a theme or a concept, and the entire office gets to chime in. There's beer and there's food to sort of help get everybody like to that meeting. But literally, you can be an intern that arrived from Mumbai the day before, or Jim Olson, who's been there since the 60s, and everybody gets to participate in the conversation, and it's a design conversation. And so it improves projects, it improves thinking, it pushes everybody, and it's the most critical sort of ritual that we have, and we are religious about it. Welcome to Best Practice, a show where we interview leaders in the building industry to unpack the tools, strategies, and tactics they use to run great organizations. Today, my colleague at Monograph, Chris Morgan, and myself are very pleased to welcome two principals at Olson Kundig. We now have this team where we're kind of this uh, theme of, of bringing uh, two people on board to chat. So this is really great. Very excited for this conversation. We have Alan Maskin, who's one of the six owners of the firm, and Jerry Garcia, principal at Olson Kundig. And they're going to join us today for a fireside chat with a little bit of background on Olson Kundig. It's a 200-person collaborative design practice in Seattle that's recognized nationally and internationally for the design of its projects and design culture in the office. Evidence of their acclaim is the fact that I think we've reached the limit of this Zoom plan based on registrants, which is pretty exciting. So a little bit of background on each of them. Alan um, has a remarkable story, which I think we'll touch a little bit upon from starting as an arts educator, going from there to starting his architecture career at 30, to joining Alston Cundit to run the IT department, not the kind of traditional route by any means, and then ultimately joining the partnership at Alston Cundig and leading cultural projects. He's been awarded first place in multiple international design competitions, and uh, he leads a team of architects, designers, visual artists, and researchers, a very kind of hodgepodge of different types of people, which we'll probably talk about as well. We also have Jerry Garcia, as I mentioned, the principal, where he focuses on, on the dialogue between architecture, art, and community at large. He has collaborated with world-renowned artists such as Anish Kapoor, Hamid Plencia, and Doug Aitken in installations in both public and private realms. So one more thing, special thanks to Ryan Patterson, who previously worked at Olsen Kundig and now works at Folsom Singh in Richmond, Virginia. He actually originally connected us to Alan to organize this conversation. And he's all, and he also highly recommended Jerry Garcia to join as uh, considers Jerry a mentor. So very special. So with that, I think I'd just like to thank you both for joining us. Thank you so much, George. Total pleasure to be here. Yeah. I think Chris has might have a couple of questions. He has a little bit lined up from uh, previous feedback he was getting through Instagram. So, Chris, if you want to take it away, sure. Uh, thank you again, Alan, Jerry. It's, it's a huge pleasure to have you on here. Seeing that we're all tuning in remotely, but preparing to return back to the office in different capacities, everyone across the world. I was hoping that you could talk through the space in the office at Olsen Kundig and how the space supports the different cultural programs that the office has been running. Sure. Uh, so if we were all walking in the space today and, and the tour of the office is actually something that happens many times a day, probably with every new potential client or people who visit us. And we've gotten this feedback that the tour of the office is actually the thing, one of the things that actually describes who we are and what we're about the best. And so if you're going to imagine in your heads when you arrive, it's a hundred year old building called the Washington Shoe Building. So it's in the oldest area of Seattle, which is in Pioneer Square. When you arrive, you enter into this space 
the very first, after encountering the person at the door that welcomes you and offers you something cold or warm to drink, you then see a long, long table filled with architectural models from over five decades of work that just always seem to stay, and it represents the types of work that we do. But we moved into our space probably a dozen years ago from another place in Pioneer Square, and Tom designed, the Tom Kunde designed the initial version of the space. And it was really important to him to have the interns uh, who are part of an international internship program that we've been running for almost 25 years to be located there. So there's a dozen people who have traveled literally from all over the world to come in and work with us, recently graduated design students for the most part. So you literally see them building physical models and they're working on teams. And so that the images, the renderings, things like that, they're visually doing some of the most interesting work in the office. When you wander into the, a little bit further into the space, there's a couple of boxes that we call shoe boxes that are a reference to the original shoe building. And they, they have these kinetic aspects to them. There's a very large piazza that's filled with kinetic furniture that tables and chairs that can move and be reorganized so that all 200 of us can be together for a Monday morning all-hands meeting. And they also can turn into bleachers so that they actually can be reconstructed and people can literally build them for whatever types of meetings they want to have. But most of the office is an open plan. It's made out of plywood. Uh, We put a lot of our sort of design dollars into creating a kinetic piece that is sort of the highlight of the tour in many respects. And we work with Phil Turner, who's a part wizard, part engineer, who literally will work with almost any team that wants to make some part of their building move or kinetic or change. And when you walk out onto this bridge, you literally move these levers that connect to the water system in the city of Seattle. And then the water actually moves into pistons that raises the skylight up into the air that allows the warm air to go through. It's a heat chimney of sorts. It's visually incredibly beautiful. There's a wall there to catch shadows as they move across the Pacific Northwest sky. And it's sort of the sort of heart and soul of taking something that didn't exist anywhere else and turning it into a a design commodity that has many, many functions. Yeah. And I'll just add on to that. That's on the main floor. And then as you go downstairs to the fifth floor, our office consists of three floors. That's where I sit on the fifth floor, right adjacent to the stairs. And I actually sit right next to Jim Olson, the founder of the office. And I don't know, maybe six years ago, we were doing some renovation to our desks, to some of the workstations. And Jim told the carpenter, he said, put a shelf in between Jerry and I, and we're going to put interesting things on it. And so from that start, we created our own art venue called The Ledge. And we've been inviting world-renowned artists, really, really amazing artists from various parts to make work to place on our shelf. That Then we have an opening. This invitation is only for, for staff, for our colleagues. And we invite the artist. The artist creates work. We treat it like a big opening with refreshments and food. And the artist introduces the work. And it's been really rewarding because both I've collected artwork for 30 years. Jim's collected artwork for 50 years. We do so many homes and institutions that are centered around art. And we feel like living with art really provides an insight that you just can't get from a single museum experience or a gallery experience. So we wanted to have work that would live with us and work with us for months. And then from that, perhaps we get some insight into the work itself and to how to best create environments for artwork. And it may seem like a little thing, but it was really fun when Oscar Toison, the great sculptor, had his show. That same week, the same body of work was on the cover of Art in America. 
So it kind of also gave this kind of credibility in that, you know, if you treat something as though it's important, you know, you give it that reverence, it shows, it just shows. And so um, I think it tells a lot about Jim Olson and kind of the beginning of our practice. I'm curious about just kind of the way it's being described, at least the journey of being taken through. I'm, I'm assuming there's multiple, as you were saying, there's multiple tours given throughout the day for potential recruits, potential clients. Is that like narrative intentional to some degree? Like, are there like, you mentioned even the detail of like, you know, the first thing they're done is given a refreshment, right? It almost sounds like a lot of that is very curated. It probably sounds more choreographed than it actually is, George, in all honesty. I mean, I think that, I think a lot of the things that we're probably going to talk about today didn't necessarily start as a, as mm. an intentional strategy, but that they sort of evolved into one. And so there was this sort of interesting discovery for us in that the design for your own office could in fact be a mirror or reflection of who you are to the world in many respects. And, you know, there's many, many other layers and people that we haven't covered here that are like equally interesting and, and kind of surprising as you wander through the space. But there's no offices. It's a wide open plan. You know, Jerry mentioned he sits next to Jim. Tom's on the sixth floor. Kirsten's on the fourth floor. Kevin's on the fifth. Like we're all pretty spread out and we're in the landscape, all the coworkers. So there's a good aspect of mentorship that happens in that scenario where you just overhear conversations and things, or you used to, and we will again, just the ability to sort of overhear what people are doing, how they do it. Yeah. And so it, it's designed intentionally for sort of that to be a space where that can happen. George, to follow up on that, George, I was just in Guadalajara. I was having dinner with these great architects, Masia Semperedo, and they actually toured our office. And during dinner, they just brought up how much they enjoyed that office tour. And I think it is that our work is rather, there's a clarity and a precision to our work, to the built work. And there's perhaps a lack of clarity and precision to our office. You know, you can kind of provide insight into how we think and how we collaborate and how we work. And I think that's what's kind of, you just feel it. You walk into the space and it's just a nice place to work. It just feels right. I'm very curious if there's a piece of this too. Am I correct to assume that the, is the building itself owned by the company? Because I'm, I'm, no, it's not. Yeah, no. All the interventions that happen into this or that seem to happen into this is like not necessarily, I mean, in other words, I think about like places like New York, right, where it might be harder to pull off some of these type of um, interventions, right? I think timing is everything. And when we were looking for a new office, it was during a previous recession and especially in Pacific Northwest when the sort of tech collapse happened, which you can imagine in a city that has the level of technology companies like Seattle, it was really profound. And so the original space we're in was going to be somebody's apartment actually. And then, so not only were we able the only, and they had just redone the building and nobody was leasing. So not only were we their first tenants, but also they were extremely amenable to have a tenant and also to the, the kinds of things that we wanted to do. And I think they realized, you know, we're an architecture firm, so we're probably going to improve this space in a way that would be beneficial to them. And so there was a TI budget that we got to work with and so on. So if we were doing it today, would we be able to put a hole in the roof and connect to the water system and have a skylight? I'm not so sure, but at the yeah. time, we certainly could. I also want to follow up on what Alan was saying, though, in that uh, we oftentimes, we're kind of renowned for our gizmos, but the gizmos, they really matter when they're doing more than one thing. And... The fact is that the skylight above our, our stair, it doesn't just open just to open. It opens because it allows our entire office to function without air conditioning in the middle of summer. And it's kind of like it provides that chimney effect to kind of exhaust all the hot air. And the other thing that I love about the skylight is, you know, of course, it's going to center in the middle. You gather in the light. 
But in the wintertime in Seattle, when you go to work when it's dark and um, you leave when it's dark, it's actually quite beautiful because it's the darkest place in the entire office. So it's like not just as a device, as like this construct, but actually in terms of how it engages with the environment, it just keeps leading you there. And I think that that's one of those things to where you see that it's not just for the, the mechanical act, but in terms of how it helps you engage with the environment, the people that resonates with people and that kind of brings it home in terms of what the practice is about. I'm really curious to hear about some of the founding history of the different programs at the office. What's so fascinating is the office predates both of you. You joined as the office was going along and had already set up cultural foundation, and yet you've founded and evolved some of these programs over many, many years. I'm curious to hear, what was it like when you joined and what were the foundations that were in place? And then what did you add on? It's a great point to make, which is that the firm not only had been predated both of our arrival, but it had by decades. And Jim Olson yeah. started in the, in the late 60s. And so, and many of us were drawn to the firm for already because of different aspects of how Jim worked and how Tom worked and so on. I joined and there were 25 people and now we're at 200. So there, that gives you a sense of scale. When I started, there was a Monday morning meeting that had just begun, which was an all-hands meeting. That still happens today, but it has much, much more layers and depth than it did when it originally started. We also had, and this is the most important thing uh, that we do as a culture, which is every Thursday at 4.30, we close computers, we put pencils down, we join in that piazza space I told you about, and one or two projects will be presented or a theme or a concept and the entire office gets to chime in. There's beer and there's food to sort of help get everybody like to that meeting. But literally, you can be an intern that arrived from Mumbai the day before or Jim Olson, who's been there since the 60s. And everybody gets to participate in the conversation. And it's a design conversation. And so it improves projects. It improves thinking. It pushes everybody. And it's the most critical sort of ritual that we have. And we are religious about it. It happens without fail. So that was the landscape when I started. Shortly after I started, I got involved in uh, creating the International Internship Program, which was another interesting piece. And then a speaker series, which Jerry and I both are reinvigorating at the moment. But that's 25 years later as well. So, And that was held in our Monday morning meeting and once a month. We invite people in and we will be inviting people in from around the world to inspire the people that work there to do great work by seeing the examples of people doing amazing things in disciplines, for the most part, other than architecture. And so it's been an incredibly interesting series. And now we're going to be pretty soon this year. Keep your eye out for it if it sounds interesting to you guys. But we're going to be inviting anybody into our office for that meeting virtually. And our speakers will also reflect a hopefully sort of more global range. Jerry, do you want to describe when you arrived? Sure. sure. So I joined the office, was probably about 65 people. So the art venue was called The Ledge. That's one of my Gemini's contributions to the culture. Another thing we did was there is kind of a slide presentation venue called Pachacucha, Pachacucha, you can call it whatever you want. But um, I had gone to one right after joining the office. And I was sitting next to Stephen Rainville, who's a fellow principal, who's like just a, an astonishing architect. And I was just telling him how horrible it was, how to kind of go to, you go to a bar and you have these people who are designers and artists and what have you. They just present slides and just try to impress everybody. So everyone's kind of impressing you, trying to impress everybody. And it was just a horrible venue, a horrible event. 
And so Stephen said, well, why don't you just hold one here? And so the whole idea was that instead of being in a, in a venue, you kind of invert this condition to where you're neutral venue and you have all these strangers presenting their art, their work to other strangers to try to impress them. What about if you have your colleagues, the people that you spend more time than probably you do with your partner? What about you have them presenting work or something about themselves that you might never know? And so we started just doing this. And I think we've done 22 of them over the years. And they've just been really rewarding in terms of providing people an opportunity to present another side of themselves. And during this COVID time, we've continued them. And during this COVID time to where we've been growing and we have employees, we have fellow staff and colleagues that we haven't even met in person yet. And so the last Petra Kucha was all people have been hired since the beginning of the pandemic. So we're seeing these presentations by our colleagues who we didn't even know yet, I haven't really gotten to know yet. So that's been another kind of rewarding thing. And then lastly, uh, the crit. I actually learned this from Alan. I was asked if I would help kind of steward the crits. And the first thing I did was invite six of the most talented people, six of the most talented people in the office to kind of help. And so we kind of collectively work as a crew. And also we wanted this to continue during COVID. So there are a few things that were difficult, right? I don't think you can understate how having nice wine and cheese for the taking at a crit, how valuable that was in enticing people to drop by the crit before um, heading home. And so you have a venue in which you're, you're working remotely. So what's the incentive for people to actually take the time out of a very busy day to commit to crit? And so we thought, you know what, when the office was 25 people, it made sense to crit one project when maybe there was 12 projects in the entire office. But now when there are 200, how do we maximize the impact of this kind of uh, venue within our practice? And so we decided to do crits, multiple projects. So we do crits of four different projects by four different owners during the same crit. You know, or we would just have a theme in terms of hospitality or site planning within residential architecture. So we just try to keep it kind of dynamic. We even did a very successful crit called Cribs. It was called OK Crit Cribs. And we actually had people kind of share where they live and where they were spending their, the pandemic. And again, really beautiful productions. And again, just trying to find ways that we can kind of get to know each other better in a way that's kind of, that only happens when you create a venue that's outside of the kind of the day-to-day. So that's what I've done. That's awesome. I'm, I'm thinking about how with, there's also lots of other programs that we haven't mentioned yet, and you can explore this on uh, Olson Kundig's website. But something that's kind of occurred to me with, even before this live presentation, we were talking about the alumni of uh, Olson Kundig. I'm curious to what degree Olson Kundig is like an architecture school. Like how different is it? Because <laughs> it seems like in a lot of ways, it's very similar. There's actually a quote from a conversation that Alan had, an interview that Alan had that's just excellent on background uh, of Alan's history. And he had this interesting point, which was, can you affect the world through design more by being a designer or by being a design educator? And Alan was also an arts educator before becoming an architect. So I'd love to hear about how you think, how close Olsen Kundig is to an architecture school. It's an interesting question, Chris. And it's we are very much a practice. We have many, many projects. We're crazy ambitious about where we want to go, the things we want to do, how we want to keep evolving as a design firm. We're going into our sixth decade. Like That's a very long time to have the window open. And so in that regard, I think we're a business and we're trying to provide excellent service and really high quality design. And so that is the main premise for what we do. 
The quote that you gave was in reference to a professor that Tom and I both had back when we were architecture students. She ran a foreign study program and it was in Rome and Stephen Hall studied there, Ed Weinstein, Tom and I both studied there. And as well as like hundreds of like landscape architects or people that work in the urban realm, artists. And she had this incredible effect. I mean, I just finished a remodel of Seattle's Space Needle. So many of the ideas from that project track to that teacher and that experience. And so I think that's true of all of us. We carry with us the lessons that we learned in design school. And there are some components of that, like the crit, which definitely feels like a studio crit. And it certainly carries over from that tradition in architecture and the ways that we sort of come together. But the last piece is that mentorship is huge for us. And so we created an internship program so that we could actually provide teaching and training to people at the beginning of their careers. And so there is an educational piece for sure that carries into what we do. But I also would say that at the end of the day, we are really, really excited to be making interesting and cool projects. Yeah. And I'll add on to it in terms of, uh, you know, I worked with this co-op of artist architects, poets, and industrial designers that founded their own city on the Chilean coast probably over 50 years ago. And a lot of them were professors at the Catholic University. I taught at the Catholic University also. But they had, I think it was at the 50-year year anniversary, they built this structure in the dunes. And, and one of the introductions was that may all their ex-students remove X in front of students. And that always struck me. And so I think when it comes to teaching and mentoring, me personally, I think the first thing I do is kind of just make it pretty explicit that I'm still just a student and I'm still just learning. And I'm kind of complicit in the, uh, this pursuit of something that's unattainable but we just keep trying to get better and better at. So there's some aspects of this to have, our conversation has really been around like these rituals of sorts, right? Or the, yep. you know, sort of referring to, to programs and such. And I'm wondering, how do you look at culture also from like the lens of like who you bring onto the team, right? As a 200 person company, every new person that you add to the company changes sort of the DNA to some capacity, right? They bring their own experiences, whatnot, especially in open platforms where you're talking about, Design feedback, right? Even the critique itself is another avenue where you probably see this a lot, right? Different people's ideas play out. In the hiring process itself, what are the good signals to you in the sense of, for that piece that you know this person might be a good, and cultural fit could have its own biases, but even then still just like, what are you looking for in terms of the attitudes, perspectives of that person that you know, okay, like they can gel in this environment and actually be a net positive in some way, right? Yeah. We have a team of people that actually works on hiring, and obviously we've been hiring for decades. And so there is are certain things that actually we do look for. And I think for the most part, portfolio is huge. We're looking for, we're really fortunate, George. We have an amazingly talented group of people that work at Olson Kundig, and they now come from all over the world. And they it's a pretty extraordinary bunch. And I wouldn't get hired today if that came up. I mean, they just, it's kind of- Certainly not for IT. Like you got in the first time. (laughs) Right, which was how I snuck in the door the first time. But I think we're looking for certain things. I think we're looking for people that are going to be generous, that are going to learn new things, but also being able to to sort of share new things as well. And so people that are self-aggrandizing or kind of trying to climb their way to top or be competitive, I, I think if you can sense that vibe in an interview, then that usually doesn't work for us. And so if there's evidence of people who have been worked on things, volunteered for things, been involved in certain types of programs that show that been teachers themselves. To us, those are indicators that that's a person that could fit really well. But at the end of the day, where is their passion for design and does it work with ours? And so 
I think that's probably the biggest thing. Just a quick story, just uh, as far as when I was being hired, <laughs> I had uh, recently completed a, a very important project for myself that was ground up, amazing clients, amazing site, everything. But I was talking to Tom, I was actually competing against Tom for a project at the time. And we were talking about the work, we were talking about maybe being able to work at Olson Kundig. And there was a point that he, like there was all the photos of the project I finished, I was super proud of, it had been the culmination of my entire practice up to that point. And it was so beautiful that there was a point he said, if you worked here and he pointed at it, this would be better. And at that moment, it was just like, hell yeah, I'm in, I'm all in. And I think that that's another thing that I think that we want, that we look for are people that are, have accomplished really amazing things in their own right, whether it's academically or with other firms, but also want to just keep learning and want to keep pushing it and kind of learn from each other. I love that anecdote, if only because that could have gone two different ways. Your answer could have gone to a different way. And I think that is like, you know, the other answer obviously is like offense, right? You're offended. Like, what do you mean? Like, it's going to be better. Of course not. But a beautiful anecdote, because I think that, I mean, at Monograph, I think we have very similar values in the sense of like who we look for. And I think that's a big part of it. The kind of continuously learning aspect is critical to us as well. So a really beautiful anecdote. Alan, I want to, I want to pick two little words or phrases that I think are, are unique that I picked up from this interview that I listened to on Arconnect and also what you just mentioned just now, which is being extremely generous with your colleagues, like that generosity. And at the same time, there's another phrase that I love that you use because I saw you, you used it twice. So it must be something uh, remarkable. What's funny is we had a conversation at Monograph a couple of days ago, we were discussing our favorite animals and a few people mentioned elephants. And I have a sense that an elephant is your favorite animal because it's showed up in a lot of ways in your <laughs> projects. And you, you've you even used the phrase being the elephant in the room. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you think about the elephant in the room and then this other idea of being extremely generous with your colleagues. Well, I never brought those two things together. And so I think it's kind of interesting, but I have in fact done a number of elephants in work in parks and installations and other things around the world. And, you know, I'll be honest, I like to go big scale. And so you can't get much bigger than an elephant. So in that regard, when the elephant is in the room, you can't miss it. And I think that's how it switches over to the metaphor that you're asking about, which is there are some times when an individual or an idea will be in a room. And I personally do my best work when I'm surrounded by people who are smarter than me and more creative than I am. And put me in a room with five people that meet that criteria. And I do, I just sort of know how to function in some levels. And every so often there will be a sense and someone will emerge and it will be just undeniable. Like we have to go in that direction or that person has to be seen. You guys mentioned Ryan Patterson at the beginning. And Chris, I know you went to school with him and he was important to you. And Actually, he connected us for this. And Ryan was with us for four years. And he this is an example of someone that was a pretty clear elephant, actually. Instagram was just getting rolling and probably a year or two in to the platform being created. And we were sort of like, should architecture firms do this? Should they engage? How would they engage? And then someone sort of came up to me and said, you know, that new guy, he's got 35,000 followers. And so it was literally like sitting down with that person who was so clearly the most talented person that could have walked in our door and say, okay, we're going to hand this to you. You've been here for less than a year and we're going to ask you to take this and develop it, create the voice, create the original vision. Now, currently it's evolved and many others are participating and it's taking it to other levers, but 
it went from zero to 140,000 people. And it's because of just recognizing that level of talent. So that happens every day in many, many ways in the firm, but that's one example. That's amazing. I think, you know, I'm really glad, Jerry, that you were, you brought up your experience as an experienced architect joining the firm, because that was actually an audience question that came in as well ahead of the talk, which was, of course, Olson Kuntik has this amazing internship program, but what is the sort of feeling of joining as an experienced architect? How do they collaborate with the new staff? How do you join that culture that's already an established and you're already an established person? Some firms will say that they look for, particularly for younger staff, because they're more easily molded, let's say. But I mean, a different way of thinking about this is the diversity of contribution can be stronger when you're bringing on more advanced, more experienced people vertically at any level of the firm. Yeah, actually, I think there's something really special about the office in general. And that is that really, if you look at the entire ownership group, that's a group that spent a lot of time together, decades together, that really learned what architecture is within the offices of Olson Kundig. They can speak in shorthand to each other. They just know each other so well. They trust each other. When they're working on projects together, they really collaborate deeply. So then a lot of the time, historically, we've had people have really succeeded coming in young, learning what it is to be Olson Kundig, and again, ascending to partnership or to, to partners or principals or associates, what have you. But actually, our office is different now. I was an anomaly. I was an anomaly to come in with 12 years, 13 years experience or however much I had at the time. But now that's actually the level of collaborator that we're looking for the most. We are actually wanting people who have very clear ideas in terms of what architecture is, the tectonics of architecture, the collaborative nature of it, and what it is to kind of steward it. Those are actually the people that we are actually the most interested in engaging at this point because we have astonishing opportunities. The type of projects that are that walk through our door are just, uh, they say a lot about the work that Tom and Jim have been doing for 50 years, right? So I think it's super welcomed. And I think that it's part of that. Alan always says, always has that premise, like what can we do together that we couldn't do separately? And I think that when it comes to the actual practice, now more than ever are actively engaged in trying to find out what that looks like. So yeah, it's fun that, you know, maybe my instincts aren't all consistent with Tom Kundig, but there's room. There's room for me and there's room for my colleagues within the practice for sure. I'm curious also to know a bit more about the separation between, let's say, or if there is one or not, between like, let's say design management or like, let's say, you know, the, the, which is in the pursuit of like really great projects, excellent execution versus let's say more of the people management. And is there a distinction between both? Like maybe you can walk us a little bit through like how the actual teams are organized and structured and what are the opportunities there for that generosity and feedback? How does that happen generally? I'm very curious. I think that the for the most part, and there's anomalies all over the studio, but for the most part, each project would have a, an owner. So one of the owners of the firm or a principal or a leader in the firm that is sort of overseeing and doing the client management, but also working with the team and the development of the design as well. And so I think that that's the main structure. And there's almost always a project manager and a project architect 
And there's a lot of training that happens. There's something called the principal group has been creating a number of initiatives in the firm around there's something called OKU, for example, where there literally is training for people, especially new people, even if they're experienced. And as Jerry said, we sort of love people that really know how to put buildings together, know how to detail projects and know how to take a big idea and actually deliver it. And so, but there's a lot of places where they can actually sort of check into the ways that the firm has been doing it for quite some time. But they also get to sort of add on. So new blood comes in and actually it can sort of fly to the head of the pack and take us in a different direction purely because like, wow, again, elephant in the room, like this is so much better. Why wouldn't we do it this way? And so there is that sort of ebb and flow in terms of the project. And then interns are brought on the projects often for visuals and other aspects uh, to sort of support the teams as well. So that's a general sort of team structure that kind of moves through each project for the most part. Yeah. But George, I will say this, as far as just being, you know, one of the principles, sometimes you actually have to be a little bit more formal than you might think you need to be in order for, to allow for the kind of the openness and the freedom of movement that you really want to have happen. So the, so we as a group, we kind of divvy up responsibilities in terms of some people are much better with people. You know, some people are much better with buildings. Some people are much better with prospective clients. We really kind of divvy up that kind of the framework of that discussion with regard to how the office operates in order to provide some more runway for people. So we have then, we've had to kind of do a little bit more of that work in order to allow people to have a lot more room to make a larger impact individually within the office. Yeah. In the tech world, we talk a lot about kind of individual contributors versus let's say management, right? Like there's different tracks for people. Some people just really don't ever want to look to have to manage teams in a different way, like which is more of the people, yeah. the motivation, what makes them work, career path, a lot of some, and there should be a room and a track for those people that just really yes. care about like their craft in a sense, right? Yeah. And that's been a big topic of discussion within this office for a while now, because when I certainly, it was true when I joined and it had to have been true when Alan joined, we took pride in being generalists. We took pride in being able to do it all. I know when I had my own firm, that was the same thing. I was very kind of defiant in terms of saying, oh, I can do it all. And the fact is that this firm, you no longer, actually for the good of the firm, it's kind of essential that everyone not be able to do everything and that people just be able to focus on the, the aspects of their practice that are exemplary and that provide them, each of them the most um, reward and growth. And that's the thing. I think that both Alan and I are kind of poster children, or not, not ch- certainly not children, <laughs> poster people in terms of, of how you can, I mean, we each have practices right now that there's not a parallel practice that exists in the world. You know, it's only within Olsen Kundig that we can actually do what we do on a normal basis. And so that's pretty remarkable. And I think that that's also capable of any other practicing architect or designer within our office. Sort of on a related note, do you have conscious like anxiety about as the firm grows, it becomes too corporate or too structured? You mentioned anomalies and allowing that, but how do you think about that? Does, does the partnership talk about that? Does the principal group talk about that? What is it like? How much is it on your mind? We tend to, I've been a sort of an, an owner for a while, and we always are like, whenever the firm has grown, we've been like, okay, that's it. We are not getting any bigger than this. And then this really amazing work will come along and it's like, we have to do this. And so, and then it requires more people and more talent. And it sort of relates to where we are at the moment in terms of our size. And so, but it was never a sort of conscious sort of growth pattern. It was all more like, how do we sort of get to 
sort of getting to work on some of the most interesting projects that are available or out there. And so that's been this kind of dance. I don't think that we don't spend an enormous amount of time trying to not be or appear. I mean, we are a corporation and this is what Gloria Steinem, this is what a corporation looks like. The fact that it can have interesting aspects and facets. I mean, right now we have hired maybe probably one of the biggest business changes we certainly in the history of the firm, which is we now have a CEO named HP and HP Parwani, who was on Mount Everest as we speak. So sending him good energy that he comes back. But he began as a CFO and working on operations. And suddenly we realized we used to have architects running everything. They were running the management. They were running the finances. And suddenly it was, you know, why wouldn't we have someone that really understood that aspect of the firm and the running of the firm? And it's been hugely successful. And so does that make us more corporate on, on some levels? But it also relieves us to work on the things that we're genuinely good, good at, which is the design of projects. Yeah, I'll say this in response that, to that. I know that, again, there is this complexity with regard to, to working with 200 human beings. There's kind of a burden to that, maybe. There's a weight, a gravity to that. But I'll say this, is that our owners will go to the map and really make decisions with kind of their heart and really go for it with design. It's not a kind of a passive, passionate decision. And so we, as people within the firm, we know that the owners ultimately care the most about doing the most meaningful and impactful work possible. And that heart that's kind of omnipresent to me is the thing that always, that's what I connect to and go, okay, this is still some really passionate, special people working on passionate, special projects that are going to really push design. So the minute that goes, then I would, I would be wary, but I, uh, that's been consistent my entire time at Olson Kendrick. What's been one of the changes that happened as a result of bringing HP on board in the ownership team? Uh, I think one of the biggest things is that it has someone that actually has an MBA and a background in business and knows how organizations function, has brought together a sort of the entire whole business operations and, and our legal operations and our contracts and our HR operations that are, again, for the most part, a lot of that culture was related to not in every instance, but certainly architects doing projects and also doing these other tasks. And so that culturally has been the biggest change. And I have a feeling that our coworkers were scratching their heads and wondering about this, but there are a number of other, certainly firms that we know have gone in this direction and it's been really a successful move. I was describing it to a, a colleague yesterday. She was asking me about it or someone that I, I'm going to give a lecture with. And, and she was, after we talked about it, she was like, well, why doesn't every firm do this? And because it actually makes so much sense. And so, but he's a rare case and he's ideal because he fits our culture beautifully. He is you know, incredibly smart, incredibly warm. This can be very tough when it needs to, when we need to be, but also he's, climbing a mountain because it's a personal goal of his that he's and he's tried several times and this time he's going to get there i know it and so that that kind yeah. of aspiration that works for us you know another part of that chris is just logistics in terms of we're really oddball firm right now in the world right that there's 200 of us and even to this day half of our work is residential so it's such an unusual mix that also means that we have an unusually high relatively speaking number of projects so that's a whole lot of contracts. That's a whole lot of a lot of business. You know, that's a lot of it's a lot of stuff to have to manage. And so it's nice. 
at least from me, from a personal standpoint, to not have to kind of hawk the contracts as much as I used to in the, in the past, right? And have to kind of as responsible for that as I was in the past as a practitioner. So from that standpoint, it's just like, there's just a lot going on in this office and we need as much help as possible to be able to focus on the architecture. Thanks a lot. I'm going to start shifting the conversation to the Q&A. So we've got a ton of questions in here. I'm going to try to filter out some of these So and select one. One question was about how you run your Thursday crits to encourage others to speak up. Like, how do you make yeah. it so that it doesn't just default to like the leadership team? Yeah. So I'm going to say two words that are a little controversial, but I'm going to say Joe Rogan. So and I'm going to say Joe Rogan because having to do these crits remotely has been really, really rewarding. And it's been rewarding because like you say, in a physical space, a physical space with 200 people or 150 people reviewing a project, that's not conducive to certain people feeling comfortable speaking up. But what happens now is that during crits, you know, we're presenting crits remotely, but the chat, you know, the chat column off to the side, that chat column in our crits, it just explodes because anyone can contribute at one at, at any time, right? And I mentioned the Joe Rogan thing. The Joe Rogan thing that I think it was super interesting was beyond the three-hour kind of interview, which is fascinating in terms of getting past just the superficial, is that whenever someone brings up something, a topic, the producer will just look up a topic on the internet, and then they'll just talk about it. And that's so different than any other talk show. And so all of a sudden then, people can not only, um, so we can learn, like our crits, we are now collectively learning real time the way that people learn. You learn by instantly starting to search and do image. And we're doing that collectively. So I think that this aspect to our crits will remain the same. I think that when we go back to the office, the majority of us will probably be in the main space. But I think that we're going to have live, we're going to also do it over Teams and have people contributing to the chat who are still maybe at their desks, still having to work away, but participating remotely and still have that kind of to provide a bit of porosity for people to contribute real time. But I, I think we've also really used the crit in many ways to uh, sort of reinforce like specific things about design that we want to know. So sometimes a design team will come in and they will have really clear questions yep. where they feel stuck and they want people to actually participate in that regard. I think that we've used them for design competitions where like, okay, we're working on the Bob Dylan Center, we're competing for it. We had a model making session where we, at the end of that four hours and people stayed and like they, and we put music on and they just kept building site models. And we ended up with 50 models that we were able to use in our submittal to go forward. Right. Similar for a, an amazing conversation when we were going after the Pulse Memorial, for example, yeah. just really sort of heartfelt and emotional, like in terms of what this could mean to people. And so it becomes that space where we get to actually really sort of ask sometimes very specific questions, but also what we get back is so tangible that it can actually be really be used for the efforts as well. Yeah. To allow the crit to evolve from being a venue for just reviewing one project to being a venue for establishing this, this space for discourse within our office is pretty important. If the team gets up and they just present the project and there's no dialogue, it's not doing what it's supposed to do. No, not at all. all right, we have a question about for architecture firms aspiring to pivot their design culture, do you have any experience or recommendations in how to foster a transformation of the studio? How do you carry the legacy of a firm while transforming? And what is the role of leadership in, in creating that environment, making it so that the design culture can evolve? I think it can come from anywhere in the firm. 
And it literally is like the power of a really good idea. I think the most replicable thing that we're sharing today, because we spent so much time talking about it, it is in fact the crit. And that can start small. If you have a pod of people, you're working on a project and you invite a couple others in to kind of look at where you are and to give feedback and you and build a culture where that feels safe so that anybody can sort of share their opinions without any sense of repercussion for like being critical, which is sort of so essential. So I think to the practice. But, you know, we've had design competitions occasionally where in-house design competitions that people get to work on things. And a few years ago, we had one for an installation in a design festival and a, a team came in and they wanted to build the largest ice cube the world had ever seen to point out aspects of climate change and also created this tactile, visceral thing. And they happened to win the in-house competition and they actually fabricated it and built it and they connected with a local weatherman who promoted it and created a, a competition that thousands of people participated in to guess how long the ice cube would last. And thousands of people came literally to this place to see it. And so it's an example where an individual team from our staff was able to actually create a piece of culture that wasn't just internal to us as a firm, but actually was one that our entire community could participate in. So it's two-directional. Yeah. I'll also say that like this just actually this just happened to me on this site here in Southern California. Um, where I'm at right now, but first visit to the site and the site was just way more complicated than I thought. <laughs> I mean, it was a very complicated site, but what we ended up doing today was kind of finding the part of the site that works and then aligning our efforts within what's working within the existing site. So you kind of, you double down and you reinforce what's working and you kind of expand on that and then hope that then that expansion continues. But I think the crit's a great idea for sure. We're getting multiple questions around this topic, and I, I sense an anxiety of some of the people that are asking this question because, you know, the reality is that a lot of people are probably, you know, they're listening to this and, and they're asking questions because where they're currently are at does not have the culture that you're talking about. And so yeah. I think there's, in my mind, there's a couple of options. One is it can apply to Olsen Kundig and try to... Well, well done, George. Well done. Right. Uh, number two... There's a paper um, bag under your chair, George, <laughs> if you would just reach down. And... So one is applied there, but also, I guess the other, what that just means is like you probably have to look for that firm in your region, in your community that actually shares some of the types of values that you do. I think actually it's sort of like you sort of vote through your feet, right? Like by actually yeah. like deciding to leave someplace. Now, there are obviously different firms and how they operate that don't really might not even do an exit interview, as an example, right? They, they culturally yeah. just might not have that kind of culture. You owe it to yourself to find a place that actually embodies yeah. the values that you want to work at. Just from my own practice, I'll just say this. One thing that's been effective for me is the first thing I ever did when I started working at Olson Kundig was I started just doing research on every single project Olson Kundig's done, both built and not. I'll even say that one of our, two of our favorite crits, we did a crit, we did two crits called Ghost Ship. And they were crits into which people, colleagues in the office would present projects, their favorite projects that they've worked on at, at Olson Kundig that were never built because it's a completely arbitrary thing in terms of which projects get built or not. Some of the best ideas are in the projects that never get built. And so we wanted to kind of bring them back to life to help kind of revisit the concepts and the ideas. And it was actually, it was so much fun hearing Alan talk about all these projects and Tom, and there was such a reverence and kind of, it made them feel good and excited again. And so I would say that would be one of the things. So I studied it. I would just study and study and study the work. And then I would then use some of the ideas in a project to present something 
an architecture that maybe looks a little different, but it would be rooted in the same concept or the same intent as one of our projects. And I think that that's the one of the ways that you can kind of establish credibility is by showing respect for the work that people have done in the past. Because ultimately, I think the one thing Tom always says is, I don't care who draws it. And also that it's not about how something looks, but the work it's doing. And I think that there's a lot of flexibility in that. Hey, George, there was a, I think you were heading in this direction, but I think there's a third option to that list you were putting together, which is you can also create it yourself. And so you don't have to sort of get up and leave. You don't have to necessarily go somewhere else. And it can start small. But I think that creating these initiatives wherever you are and then trying to get some level of buy-in. And, you know, as an owner of a firm, I can't imagine not wanting to be receptive to ideas that would actually improve the culture of my own organization or the design of our projects. And so I'd encourage people to sort of to give that a try. And uh, because I think that I think there'd be a lot of openness to uh, to people's ideas would be my sense. Yeah, I firmly believe like what an amazing business, not only amazing person Jim Olson is, but like what an amazing business sensibility to where he created an office where Tom Kundig could become Tom Kundig within that same office. Tom didn't have to become Tom Kundig somewhere else. He didn't have to leave. There was runway. There was space carved for him. And in terms of purely business, that's formidable to have the same client who wants a Tom Kundig house or in a Jim Olson house, both come to the same office. It's, so there's a compelling aspect as, as far as pure business goes to any owner to be able to have options and kind of sensibilities to appeal to more clients. That's a really great point, Alan, too, is about internally, we talk about how we've noticed through some through circles. I mean, both Chris and I come from studied architecture. We have friends that work in, in practice as well. And we talk to a lot of different people. And it seems like one of the best ways in which people have even just done really well for their own career is by taking that initiative, starting there, right? And, and like, whether that's actually putting together a presentation that outlines some new opportunity within the firm, whether it's an operational inefficiency and they've kind of like just spent some time to put together a five-page deck that says, here's the executive summary. Here's like two paragraphs on like what the challenge is, what the potential solution is. Here's a road, a clear roadmap of like timeline for like executing this. Just that alone is I have found to be like the... Um, sort of secret on how to actually get ahead in a firm. And if obviously if the firm is not receptive to that, then I think that's a clear indication. I'm really glad you mentioned that. And I think that's where design firms have borrowed from the tech world in some respects, where there's a lot of space for that exact thing, where they're literally are carving space for people to think more broadly than just the thing that's due that afternoon so that they can actually sort of move the, the needle in their own organization. So I share that. All right. I think uh, we're, we're sort of at time. Uh, there's a lot more questions that were asked than, uh, than our time allotted for. But I do want to end with one last question that I um, ask every guest. And it is it always has interesting answers. And so it's for both of you uh, individually. What is the nicest thing anyone has ever done for you? In order to go to architecture school, there's like a lot of answers to that question. But when I was thinking of going to architecture school, I was someone who barely graduated high school. So my math record was not, I couldn't apply. I had to do two years of math, of algebra, geometry, trigonometry, calculus, physics, in order to even apply. And I was living in Cambridge, Massachusetts at the time. And one of my roommates was a postdoc at MIT. She was literally working on her postdoc dissertation. But she would come home at two o'clock in the morning in the snow to help me with my geometry homework so that I could actually get over this hurdle. And so she's now become a, you know, an amazing scientist living in Paris, but she literally postponed her own education to help me out. 
And so it's definitely up there in my life as uh, things people have done that was about as kind as you could get. Mine's just a kind of a, I don't know, I've just had a consistently rewarding life in terms of people really taking the time with me. So I'll just say everyone that took the time to kind of actively engage me. So it's good. That's what great. a great question, George. Yeah, we, we like to mix it up here. We, we like to talk a little bit serious and dive a little bit deeply, but I think it's very important to you know recognize we're at the end of the day, we're still human. And that's a big core value of Monograph in general. So thanks for the for the very generous answers as well. Um, so with that, I just want to thank both of you. I'll kind of just wrap it up by describing a little bit about Monograph, the sponsors and the team that we're a part of here, Chris and I, for those that might not know. So at Monograph, we're building the future of practice operations. We do this for design professionals, which includes architects, landscape architects, and interior designers. We make it very easy for you and your team to understand where your budgets are at in real time, your schedules, your um, invoices, um, everything you need to know to be able to effectively answer the question of where am I at right now on a project? And that's really helpful, as you can imagine, for project teams, all the way up to firm owners and uh, operation leaders within companies. And so if you want to see what we're talking about, again, I should remind you, it's designed by architects for architects. Our founding team all studied architecture and now have had experience at working at different firms like SOM, Guthrie I've worked at places like Moss and Architectonica Geo in my landscape days. And uh, yeah, so it has a lot of attention to detail, beautifully designed. And uh, I think you'll understand immediately when you sign up for a free trial. You can also schedule a register for our live demo on Friday tomorrow if you go visit our website as well. And uh, with that, just want to thank everyone for joining me. This has been an awesome conversation. I think we could probably be here for several more hours because the questions here are, uh, they're all over the map. So anyway, I really appreciate it. And maybe we'll have you on next year and we can kind of gauge the progress of where things have been. Thanks, everyone. Thank you so much. What a pleasure it's been. Thank you, everybody who showed up today. We really appreciate it. Hey, it's Chris from Monograph. Thank you so much for joining us here. At Monograph, we're building the number one practice operations platform for small to mid-sized architecture firms. More than 200 practices are using Monograph today to run the business side of architecture. You can start a free trial today or watch a live demo with our CEO, Robert Ewan. Get started at monograph.com. That's monograph.com. Talk to you soon.